0: At SAFM Radio and at Mesh Constant on SAFM. So, this time on a Saturday morning, we like to interview and uh, get all our frequently asked questions with regards to COVID 19 answered. And Professor Helen Rees is on the line. She's a medical researcher and the founder and executive director of the VITS Reproductive Health and HIV Institute of the University of Vitvatisrand. Prof. Rees, thank you so much for joining us. Not at all. It's a pleasure to be here. Prof, we have a bunch of questions coming in. I'm going to start with the first one saying, Hi, Michelle. The prof mentioned a happy hypoxic, a person in grave danger. Are there things we could look out for to identify them and to get them to treatment before it's too late? Yes, it's, it's a good question and it's a difficult uh, problem because
1: uh, obviously people who are at risk, who've got say pre-existing respiratory problems or high blood pressure, diabetes, we're going to see uh, we're going to have a high index of of, um, uh, of uh, suspicion about them worsening. So if you 've got these comorbidities we're obviously going to be looking out to, for for people deteriorating but um, the problem with the people who some of the some of the patients who have low levels of oxygen in their blood is that they' not they don't experience it they're not short of breath they don't necessarily feel uncomfortable and that's a problem um but i think that the the, the real message to everybody here is if you are short of breath if you're Feeling if if you if you feel or you feel that your relative's condition is deteriorating, rather go in and get them assessed. And in the hospitals and in the clinics, they can actually check what that oxygen uh, level is in the blood. And if it is too low, then the treatment is to give um, to give oxygen in in one form or another. Um, and so. It's very difficult, but if you've got people who are elderly or who've got pre-morbidities, have a very um, high index of suspicion and, and rather go and get them checked up early.
0: Another question for you, uh, for Prof. Helen Reese, I'd like to know more about the vascular impacts of the coronavirus and how they can be treated.
1: Well, (laughs) there are different vascular impacts that we've we've discovered um, over time. One is that the virus can cause inflammation actually in the in the arteries themselves, Um, and that can have all sorts of different consequences. It can affect things like the the blood supply to the heart, to the brain, um, and to other organs. So it's inflammation, and that's one sort of impact. The other impact that we're seeing are these small clots that can form and they can break off and you can get what we call microemboli, which again can affect some of the major organs, including the lungs themselves. So it can be inflammation, it can be the formation of clots, um, <clears throat> and both of those cause secondary problems depending on which organs are affected. So it,
0: it is a disease also of, of, of blood vessels, it's quite right, and of blood. Then uh, someone says the latest research, people are getting really smart now, the latest research suggests that viral load in the exposure can determine how sick one will be. Could you expand on that?
1: So the question was the viral load when you're exposed.
0: Y- yes, so that, <laughs> that, yes, yeah, yes. that dependent on well, the viral load would mean how yes. sick you get.
1: Well, that, that's, that's sort of, that would be a common understanding, but we, there's a lot we don't know about transmission of this virus even yeah. now. Um, and, and that's why there's a whole discussion still about how important we had that discussion the other day is aerosol spread versus droplet spread. Yeah. So there's a lot we're still trying to understand. Um we, we don't know how much virus you need to actually cause an infection. So we don't know sure. that. We don't yeah. know what is the dosage that is required. The, what we would expect is that people who have um, a high exposure to a lot of virus and perhaps repeatedly are more likely to get severe disease, just because you've just got a much bigger viral exposure. And that's one of the reasons we're particularly concerned about healthcare workers, and particularly yeah. healthcare workers in environments where there might be aerosol-generating procedures, because their risk of repeated exposure is much greater. Yeah. So the answer is, we don't know, but we would expect that, uh, that the, the bigger viral exposure that you have, at the time of an infection, potentially the worse, the, the more the, the more severe the infection might be.
0: So Eric and Durbin says, good morning. Please ask Prof. Helen what she thinks <coughs> of nasal irrigation as practiced in Thailand.
1: Uh,
0: which, <laughs> which irrigation was that? Na-
1: na- nasal irrigation. Nasal. Oh, nasal. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I know that a lot of people, um, e- even in South Africa, a lot of people do nasal irrigation and particularly at this time of year where people, you know, wake up and feel very sinusy. Um, but there is no evidence that nasal irrigation will assist or, or protect because um, we do know that the, the mode of entry is into the respiratory tract, which it can also be into the eyes, as we've said. But we, there is no evidence to say that if you irrigate that you're going to be able to do that. Because remember that you're only going to irrigate at one point of the day. But if your exposure was last night and the virus has been sitting there, the virus has already got um, a, a means of, of entering cells before you ever do this. So there is no evidence for that. But um, there's also no evidence that it's harmful. Yeah. Um, and as I say, a lot of people find it, it gives them relief from sinuses. So these are, so at the moment, no no evidence to protect or, or to, to, to treat, but no evidence that it's harmful.
0: So um, someone says, good morning to all. Are we now on a peak with the virus? If not, when is our peak due? And there's an incredible increase in home deaths from COVID, which is worrying. Um, mostly it's the elderly who don't leave home. Why is that so? Yes. <clears throat> well, we're not yet, I think, as
1: a country, we're not yet at the peak. Because, as we know, Western Cape came up first, and they mm. seem to be plateauing at the moment. Um, but Khaoteng, KZN, is, is now coming up. We're, but we're seeing the free state. Uh, so so the different promises are coming behind. So as a country, no, we're not yet at the peak of, of, of that. And I think that we will be seeing the peak, we think, in August or, or September. Um, and, uh, and 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 we, we're going to have to, to, to see... You know what happens and how quickly we go up to that peak and whether we then platter. In terms of deaths, um, South Africa has traditionally been quite good at recording deaths. But once you have an outbreak like this, as as the, the caller has said, you know, are you going to miss deaths? Are, are some deaths going to be put down to other conditions and like diabetes, for example, because that what that's what it looks like, whereas actually it's, it was triggered by. So, so, so certainly one of the things that we looked at is how well are we recording this? Home deaths um, is, is a, a certainly an issue because one of the, the characteristics of this infection is it can go incredibly rapidly. Deterioration can go rapidly. So home deaths are certainly an issue, but the the message that's gone out to all practitioners is that this is a notifiable disease and we do need to know everything we can about all deaths. So we're going to have to watch. We've seen this in other countries in Europe where deaths of the elderly in trail care facilities were not sufficiently well recorded. So it's a good point and it's something that's definitely been looked at.
0: Are you suggesting that uh, our deaths are higher than what's actually recorded at this point?
1: I think that most people would assume that they would be every, everywhere in the world, yeah. <laughs> anywhere in the world. Even with yeah. the best systems, you're not going to be able to capture every single death. Sure. So I think it's very likely that there will be some deaths attributed to other causes. For example, it could it could look like a heart attack, but yeah. the trigger could have been COVID. So sure. so it's very likely we're going to have these attributed these deaths attributed to other causes um, and as was said, because we are seeing deaths in the home, um, particularly in the elderly um, and people who are perhaps living alone, but we are definitely seeing deaths in the home and are we capturing those? Possibly not as well as we should. So are we underestimating? Pretty certainly yes. Do we have a re- reasonably good system? I think we do. Um, it's been a very good system historically and we're building on that, um, But, but as you said, we're going to have to keep trying to keep track of all deaths that were put towards COVID.
0: We have a voice note for you here. We'll go uh, into that in a moment. But before we go to it, um, just to ask the question, someone says, and such a good question because we have looked at this, but it is a huge issue, says, Prof, there seems to have been a push on social media touting hydrochloroquine as a cure for COVID-19 in the last week. It becomes difficult to distinguish fake news from truth when the topic is presented, this is so true, in quasi-scientific terms over and over again. Could you please update us as to the real current scientific research on this drug?
1: Yes, a very good question. And I'm sure many people saw it or heard about this thing that went viral. And it was, it was from somebody who was meant to be a, a clinician in the United States, surrounded by people who were also meant to be clinicians saying that uh, she treated 300 patients with a combination including hydroxychloroquine and they all got better. Now, <clears throat> the current evidence, and this is why it's really, really important to only go with the evidence, we do have evidence on hydroxychloroquine um, from big, well-conducted studies looking at whether there's any benefit with hydroxychloroquine both for treatment and for prevention. And those studies have, have shown that there, there is no benefit and one of the things you must be careful about is is just using rumour to start either treatment Jeez. or prevention. Because all drugs have side effects. Some drugs, including drugs like hydroxychloroquine, can interact with other drugs. So to go on to a medicine where there is absolutely no evidence from well-controlled, big studies that there's any benefit... Uh, would, be, would be very hazardous and I know that some GPs are prescribing this but I think just to underscore no evidence we should not be giving drugs that have potential side effects uh, when there is no benefit to the patient.
0: Okay. And I think uh, we should listen to that loud and clear. There's a a, a proper, you know, you are not only the chair of the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority, but you're also a member of the World Health Organization International Health Regulations Committee, the IHR uh, committee in COVID-19. Now, apparently you released a report on COVID uh, recently as well.
1: Well, Listeners might not be familiar with this, but a lot of people will be familiar with the fact that you've got to have a yellow fever certificate when you go into countries which have got yellow fever. There's a piece of global legislation around global health that the WHO can use, which is which is called the International Health Regulations, and this is a piece of legislation that really looks at emergencies, global emergencies and says are there global recommendations that we should be making? So there is a committee that's, that was convened earlier this year by the Director General of WHO which is called an emergency committee that's been looking at COVID and it meets periodically, it has to meet every three months but has met more frequently and it makes recommendations. So that committee met in this last week and the recommendations, in fact, met yesterday and the recommendations will be coming out from the World Health Organization. But the committee reviews everything, the state of the epidemic, the state of the responses from countries, World Health Organization, and then it makes recommendations about what the world should be doing, including recommendations around things like travel.
0: Yeah. So uh, any chance that we're going to travel now, soon, ever again? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think uh,
1: if you look at the last set of recommendations from that committee, which are all in the public domain, the important thing about travel is, is, is really to be to be logical and you saw in the what happened this week in the uk where they said yeah. yes let people travel and then, and then, then because of surges in spain they said when you come back you've got to have 14 days quarantine yep. so the important thing when you think about travel at the moment the recommendation for travel it really should be essential travel and that's people working in, in in emergencies humanitarian um who really do have to travel because of because of their work or because of say in exceptions emergencies mm. So that is still the recommendation. But in in addition, what we need to think about is if I'm in country A and I want to travel to country B, does country A have a, is is it at a peak of an outbreak at the moment so that there's a high risk that my travellers are going to possibly carry the virus Mm. into country B? Or is it the other way around? Or are both countries, you know, in the same state of affairs? So when you think about travel recommendations, you're going to have to weigh up what's happening in the country of origin, and the country where the person is going to, and what is the risk of export from one country into another. And that's the kind of thing that's continuously being looked at. Fantastic.
0: Professor Helen Rees, once again, thank you so much. Keeping us updated and... uh In the know when it comes to COVID-19, she's a medical researcher and the founder and executive director of the WITS Reproductive Health and HIV Institute of the University of Witwatersrand. She's also the chair of the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority and, as you heard, a member of the World Health Organization IHR Committee in COVID-19. 750 with SFM 104 to 107.